We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. I want y'all to look at John chapter 3 with me. John 3.16 is a verse, I don't know if I ever tried to memorize it, it was like it was just osmosed into me. It's like you just automatically know it. But what I want to show you this morning is not merely John 3.16, but John 3, 1 through 15, and then John 3, 17 through 21, and what in light of that John 3.16 means. Uh, it is a marvelous idea indeed. Just stay with me. Now, I've mentioned to you before that the Gospel of John is unlike the other three. The other three Gospels are, they're called the synoptics. They have the same view. They are chronological. They're linear. They're horizontal. From his incarnation, his youth, his, his uh, beginning of his ministry, through his ministry, betrayal, death, resurrection, ascension. All right? It's all linear. The Gospel of John is chronological, but its emphasis is vertical. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. With God became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as of the only God and the Father. And so it is God intersecting man all the way to the cross. We looked on him whom we have pierced and mourned for him. And so it's God intersecting man. And the chapters are monumental confrontations between Christ and singular individuals. Nicodemus, woman at the well, the nobleman and his son, the uh, lame man, the blind man, um, Pilate, Simon Peter, do you love me? It's these monumental conversations between the divine and a human. And those humans are all representative. Woman at the well, we have an immoral woman. Uh, the nobleman's son, we have a frightened Gentile. Uh, the uh, lame man, we have a Jew 38 years in his sickness as long as Israel was in the wilderness. The blind man. Uh, and here in chapter 3, we have Jesus and the classic Jew. The classic Jew. Stay with me here. It says, there is a man of the Pharisees the ruling class of Israel, the scholars. His name is Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That's a play on words. Nicodemus means a ruler of the people. Nicodemus, ruler of the people. And he is a ruler of the people. So it's like we have Nicodemus, Nicodemus. We have a ruler of the people, a ruler of the people. And God just wants us to know he is a Pharisee. He is a ruler. He's on the Sanhedrin. And he is powerful, and he is good. There's only two Sanhedrinists that are good, two Pharisees that are good in the New Testament, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Um, Nicodemus challenged the Jews. We don't condemn a man before we've heard him, do we? Uh, he, he would not consent to their plot. Um, he met with Jesus on an appointment. We know you've come from God as a teacher. When he died, he said, I'll take the body. He's called a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. He's quite a guy. And so this is the classic confrontation 
with the people of Israel. Uh, it says in verse 2, he came to Jesus by night. He doesn't want a confrontation. He doesn't want to talk to him surrounded by the crowd trying to catch him in a, in a misstep. He doesn't want the disciples around him. He wants a personal interview with Christ. He's a seeker. And he said, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In other words, he's convinced. I know you're from God. That's beyond question. And I know because of the signs that you do. That's beyond question. So you are who you say you are. And I have got some questions. Well, in verse 3, Jesus, as the teacher, now teaches. And how do you know a great teacher? They answer your question before you ask it. And that's what he does. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus's question is, what must I do to be saved? At this time in Israel's history, a heresy had overtaken them. Israel's belief from Abraham on is that Abraham believed God and he was reckoned as righteousness. You're saved by faith. Um, the ceremonial worship of Israel is you don't come to God. The priest comes with the shedding of blood of a spotless victim and, you're, and you are covered by what he does. The prophets never prophesied of keeping the law. They prophesied of true, heartfelt faith in God. And so Nicodemus and all of that day had the question, what must I do to be saved? The rich young ruler, what must I do? The uh, Pharisee in the parable of uh, the uh, uh, Good Samaritan, what must I do? You tell me, you know the law, love your neighbors yourself, love God, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do this and live. And who is my neighbor? I'm glad you asked. And he lays it out. And so Nicodemus has a question. And, and it's the question that good men have that don't know Christ, that are not assured of their salvation. Because no matter how good you are, what is the nagging question that is always behind your thinking? Am I good enough? So what's the standard? Because if the standard's God, nobody's getting in because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So how good do I have to be? Martin Luther said that he was the monk's monk. He said, if one could be saved through monkery, it would have been me. He, um, he damaged his intestines through fastings, when he would come to confession, the other priest would run because they know they're going to be there for an hour. They're going to miss lunch. Uh, Luther really did believe that you had to keep the traditions and the law to be saved and you were going to purgatory and he didn't want to be there. And he was never, ever assured, am I good enough? The verse that terrified him was, uh, in Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
from faith to faith, from beginning to end it's faith. He said that always terrified him because the righteousness of God was his greatest fear. He could never line up to the righteousness of God. And when he read that verse, he was starting to lose his mind as a priest. And so when you start to lose your mind, they make you a college professor. And that's what they did. They sent him to Wittenberg and said, here, just go teach freshmen. And for the first time, he had to teach the epistles of Paul. So he decided he'd better read them. And he reads Romans 1, that I'm not ashamed of the righteousness of God, of the gospel, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he thought, how can that be? Righteousness is earned. Righteousness is revealed. And he mulled on it and mulled on it. And then it dawned on him that righteousness is credited. It's bestowed as a gift on those who come empty-handed. And he said, and I quote, it was as though the doors of paradise opened up. Uh, John Wesley said, I came to the West, to Georgia, to to save the heathens, but who will save me? Because he was far from what he ought to be, as hard as he worked. And so righteous guys that are self-righteous are always wondering, have I been good enough? One of the questions of Mother Teresa at the end of her life was, was I good enough? Hmm. And so Jesus knows what he is asking. He looks at his face. He looks at this one-on-one appointment at night, probably up on the top of one of the uh, houses where the winds would blow. That's where you'd go up there and they talk. If you ever saw the series, The Chosen, this is a very tender scene of uh, Nicodemus watching the miracle on Mary Magdalene talking to her. How did this happen? I don't know. I was sick and then I was well. Going to Jesus and he said, I saw this. I saw this sign. And he asked this question. And Jesus answers it before he asks it. Here's how good you have to be. I know what you're thinking. Truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, This is not something new. I'll go on it more in in just a little bit. The Old Testament teaches in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 that God has to put his spirit within you and wash you clean to be in heaven. It's got to be a work of God's grace. You must be born again. He can't quite fathom that. And so he says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? He's thinking not of born again, but born of another physical birth. You've got to go back into the womb and have a do-over, a mulligan, all right? You've got to try to repeat it. It's kind of like reincarnation in a sense. You hope by reincarnation you'll do better and build up good karma so that maybe you can come back you know, as something better. Problem with reincarnation, you still have to come back as a human. It's like, and you ever see uh, the Count of Monte Cristo where the old guy digs out of his jail cell and escapes and digs into Monte Cristo's cell? And he said, am I free? And he goes, no, you idiot. You dug into another cell. That's reincarnation. (laughs) Did I make it? No, now you're a Texas Longhorn. (laughs) Sorry, Steve. (laughs) No way you're getting out. You have to do it again. Get the clear seal ready. 
You're about to be a junior high student, all right. Matter of fact, did you know that in Hinduism, reincarnation is seen as a curse that you want to get out of? That is what Buddhism was when it was invented, was a way to hit nirvana, quit feeling things, and end the reincarnation cycle. That it's like Marley's ghost always wandering and it can't rest. And so he just asked, can you get born all over again? Point is, Jesus is thinking spiritual. You have to be born of the spirit. He's thinking natural, fleshly. You've got to go through another birthday. One of the motifs of John is that men can only think to a certain level and they bump up against heaven and they can't get beyond it. Woman at the well, give me a drink. Why do you ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman. If you knew the gift of God and who says to you, give me a drink, you would have given me, uh, I would, you would have asked me and I'd have given you living water. Sir, the well is deep and the, uh, you have nothing to draw with. Where are you going to get this living water? He's talking spiritual. She's thinking physical. Whoever drinks of the water down there will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I'll give him, it'll become in him a spring of water springing to eternal life. And the woman says, give me this water so I won't have to come all the way here to draw. Hot and cold running in the kitchen. <laughs> See, she, he's thinking spiritual. She's thinking physical. The disciples go off to get food. They come back. We brought you food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. I have food to eat that you know not of. And they said, did you bring him any food? I didn't bring him any food. Huh? They can't figure it out. See, gospel of John, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. That's a hard statement. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing. If you ate my entire body, it wouldn't help you. My words are spiritual and they're true. It's a higher meaning. Uh, it's always one of the problems. Unless I can put my finger here and my hand here, I will not believe. Hello, Thomas, my Lord, my God. And so the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can understand them, they're spiritually discerned. And so, how can you go into your mother's womb a second time? Jesus says in verse 5, you don't need another birth. You need another kind of birth. Unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. Born of the water means that you are washed clean from your sin. Born of the Spirit is that you now have the law of God on your heart. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. That is what it means to be born of the water and the Spirit. Verse goes like this, Titus, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Water and the Spirit. Steve, are your sins washed away? The water. Are you a new creation? The Spirit. That's you. That's all of us. The book of Ephesians, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might wash her with the water of the word and present to himself the church in all her glory. Baptism symbolizes it. All right. 
the symbol of salvation is you die and you're raised up anew and you're raised up clean and washed. I've told you about my buddy Vince Gonzalez that I baptized him and he came up and spit. I said, what are you doing? He said, I want to make sure my tongue gets saved. All right. So you're, you're dead and you are raised. Anybody ever seen Brother Where Art Thou? Whenever Delmer goes running out to get baptized and they've got a shot over the top of him when he's baptized and you see him under the water and come up. And when he comes up, he goes <gasps> like a newborn baby. I've been saved. And that's what it means to be born again. That with Christ, you died and you're ri raised, risen and all your sins are washed away. Every spot and wrinkle. Spot means a stain, a wrinkle. Y'all remember what a granny bead is? When your mama washed your neck and you had the little wrinkle of dirt in the wrinkle and mama would just punish you. Boy, just get in there and get all that dirt. He saves us from every spot and wrinkle. Aren't you glad? Is there anything that you've done that you think nobody could forgive? Is there anything that you've done that nobody knows you did it? It's a wrinkle. Welcome to Denton Bible. All right. God knows what you did, and he's washed it away. In verse 6, Jesus says, this is why you need a different kind of birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. No matter how many times you get born over, you're still being born of a father and a mother. And so you're going to come out sinful. How many of you with multiple children, did any of them come out perfect? No, generally it's a decline, right? you know. No, they didn't. All right. And so whatever is born of flesh is going to be a little sinner. Whatever is born of spirit is going to be spiritual. It's going to have the character of God. It goes like this with Simon Peter. For you have been born again, not of seed that is perishable, but imperishable. The living and abiding word of God, as it is written, all flesh is like grass. The glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. Look around. We're fading, amen? We're fading. The grass withers, the flower fades. The beauty of its appearance is destroyed. But the word of God abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. And so no matter how many times you were born, you're born of a father and a mother, and in Adam's fall, we sinned all, and we all go down. But when you're born of God, you now become his child, and you look like him, okay? And so Jesus really is the preface of what will be Romans 8. So whatever is born of flesh is still a sinner. Whatever is born of spirit is spiritual. When you're born again of the Spirit of God, you now have an intuitive nature, natural desire to want to read, to be with God's people, and sin is no longer enjoyable. Paul said, what benefit did you derive from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. We don't, we're not sinless, but we sin less and we feel worse. 
That's how you can tell a Christian he's miserable. Let's continue. Okay. Would y'all agree with that? There's a joy to being a Christian, but there's a misery to being a Christian. The old stuff we used to do, we cannot do anymore. Have I ever told y'all my story of the Korean flu, the Hong Kong flu? It's a marvelous story. Anybody remember the Hong Kong flu? Killed a million people, 1969. I got it on the North Texas campus. I got it. And basically, you yak like few humans have ever yaked. You varmint like you have never varmited before. They filled up the North Texas, what do you call the medical center, the something or other. It was filled up. I got in and I was dehydrated. I mean, you have got power diarrhea. You have got exponential vomiting. So they put me in the hospital, put me on IVs. And I mean, I'm hallucinating. I don't know if I, what happened to me though, when I got sick, I went in, we had a bathroom I shared with my sweet mate. And I yacked as no human has ever yacked. You know what yakking is, all right. I mean, I'm, but the problem was I was throwing up so bad, I missed the commode. Yeah, and it was on the walls and it was on the ceiling. Do you think I stopped to clean it up? No, I went to the hospital. I got out in three days. Well, made it on back to my room. Do you think my roommates cleaned it up? Do you think a bunch of college men cleaned up my yak? They did not. I had thrice day of yakking all over that room. And so I cleaned it. My roommates went to Dallas to go to the bathroom. They wouldn't go in there. Yeah. And so I went and had to clean it up. Well, the foodstuffs that I had eaten, I saw. I saw them after three days. I handled them. I threw them away. I flushed them. Those foodstuffs I have never eaten since. <laughs> what are they, Tom? I'm not going to tell you. Because you'd tell Kendall and he'd send them to me every Christmas. <laughs> I have never eaten them again, nor will I. Uh, because just the smell, the sight, uh, just reacts in me like Pavlov's dog. That's the Christian life. All the stuff you used to ingest and enjoy, you now are repelled. Amen? Let's move on. In verse 7, don't be amazed, because he's looking at Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is amazed. He said, don't be amazed because it's a miracle. It's in verse eight, like the wind. The word wind in Greek is the same as the word uh, spirit, pneuma. He says, the wind, the pneuma, 
blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from, and you don't know where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind is invisible. The wind is powerful. The wind is sovereign. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going, but you feel its effects. That's the way it is when you're born of the Spirit of God. You don't know how it happened. You're not sure. Now, what happened was this. God called you by his Spirit. He convicted you. He illumined you to Christ. He created faith in you. He regenerated you. He sanctified you. He sealed you for eternity by the earnest of his spirit, and he will raise you from the dead. That's a complete anthology of pneumatology. But you didn't know that. All you knew is that something hit you. I was blind, and now I see. And Jesus says that's the way it is when you're born of the spirit. You still don't know what happened. It just came, and it hit you, and it turned you around. It bent you down. And that's the way the Spirit is. It's a sovereign act of God. You can't plan on it. You can't manipulate people into it. You can pray. You can witness. And then you back up and you let God be God. Amen. And so he says, that's the way it is. No, Nicodemus, I can't tell you how these things can be. It is a sovereign work of God. Well, in verse... Nine, he just says, how can these things be? Nicodemus said, I'm sorry, I cannot fathom what you are saying. Jesus says to him in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? Nicodemus said to Jesus, you know, we know you come from God as a teacher. Jesus says to Nicodemus, aren't you the teacher? You're the head honcho. And you don't understand these things? Truly I say to you, we, meaning Christ and the 12 that he teaches, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we've seen. And you don't accept our testimony. What that means, the things we have seen and the things we know, is understood in verse 12. I told you earthly things. The rebirth is not a new idea. It is something that Christ knows and the 12 know it is something that Christ has seen because it's an earthly thing. You can read about it. It's in the Old Testament. It's right in front of you. Are you not the teacher? And you don't know your ABCs. This is see Tom run, see Betty run, and you can't see it. It's right there. If you don't believe if I tell you truths, from the prophets. What are you going to do when I tell you some things you've never heard before? Heavenly things. Let me show you something. Keep your finger right there and look at Ezekiel in chapter 36. Go to your left. You go to the big boys. Daniel, who hits cleanup. Ezekiel in the third spot. Then Jeremiah and Isaiah. And in Ezekiel 36... I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36 and verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land, which is an encouraging thing because Ezekiel's writing during their exile. And then in verse 30, 25, here's what I'm gonna do to you in that day. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. 
I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. What is that called when we are cleansed? It's called forgiveness. The water is going to cleanse you. And in 26, then I'll put a new heart in you and a new spirit in you. And so you're going to be in that day born again of the water and the spirit. All right? And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to make you a new creation. You will die and rise again with me. And then in 27, I'm going to put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my testimonies. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers and you will be my people and I will be your God, meaning that you will finally be obedient. What is Israel's hope someday? That God will gather them and then they will be born again of the water and the spirit. Now that's what Jesus meant by I speak what I have seen. I speak what I have heard. You don't receive our witness. If you don't believe when I tell you heavenly things, I'm sorry, when I tell you earthly things, what are you going to do when I'm going to tell you something that you hadn't heard? I'm giving you what you should know. Keep going to your right to the book of Jeremiah. No, don't go to your right. Go to your left. Go to your left to Jeremiah chapter 31. And Israel that's about to go into exile, God gives them comfort. And he says, in chapter 30, uh, like I say, chapter 30, like I say, all right, who took this out of my Bible? Oh, I'm still in Ezekiel. That's right. That's, that's my problem. You know, with a scholar like myself, you can just really rest that you're going to hear the right stuff. Let's try Jeremiah this time. 31. There it is. And verse 31. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. That we're about to have a new covenant. Who is the Bible in the guy in the Bible that said, This is the new covenant, my bread and my blood of the new covenant? Christ instituted it at the Last Supper. And he says in 33, I'll put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. That's called the rebirth, when the law of God is on your heart. And they'll be my people, and I'll be their God. They'll be obedient to me. And they will not teach again every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. They'll all know me, from the least to the greatest. And... I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. In other words, someday I'm going to give rebirth and forgiveness to my nation. That has never happened to the nation of Israel. It happened to a small group of them 20 centuries ago that believed in Messiah. The nation did not want him. 
And so he did something new. He did something heavenly. He reached out to somebody else and gave the rebirth to them. Who was it? It was you. It's called the church. Can you find church in the Old Testament? You can't. It's a heavenly thing. It's not revealed until Christ's day. Have you ever seen this verse in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to God. The things revealed, they belong to us and our children forever. God says, I've given you my word. You can know sufficiently who I am, but I haven't told you everything. Would y'all agree with that? We're not omniscient by knowing the Bible. We're as instructed as God means us to be. Now we see in a mirror, someday we'll see face to face. But the secret things are known to God. The things revealed, that's for you. That's what Christ means here. How can these things be? You're the teacher, you don't understand them. We speak what we know. You don't accept it. Nick, in 12, I've told you something from the Old Testament with chapter and verse. You should know this. This is the hope of Israel, is someday when they are resurrected as a nation. Remember Ezekiel, can these bones live? Ah, Lord, you know us. The bones come together, the spirit comes into them, and they're alive again. So it will be for Israel. They're not there yet. And so I've told you something that you know. Uh, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, what are you going to do when I tell you a heavenly thing? Now, what is the new thing he's about to tell them that they have never heard before? It's a twofold thing. Watch this. Are you with me so far? Okay. See, I couldn't do this to the first service. They're kind of slow, you know. I had to wait for you all to come in here. Okay. And so, in verse 13, Christ alone has the authority to tell them heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nobody can tell you heavenly things. Why? Because they haven't come from there. Paul put it like this, who among men knows the thoughts of man, but the spirit of the man who is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. And now we, the apostles, have received not the spirit of the world, Socrates and Plato, but the spirit of God that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which we speak. And so you can't know God unless God speaks. And so he says in verse 13, no one can know what I'm about to tell you. That's why when somebody bikes up to, or walks up to your door and they're going to talk to you about book 67, you say to them, uh, are you an apostle that has seen Jesus Christ in the flesh and he has spoken to you and you are prophesied? If not, I don't want to listen to you. It's got to be from God. And so... 
Verse 13, the only one that is descended from heaven is, now what does your Bible say? Son of man. That is not just a little term that is concocted. That is an Old Testament reference. And it's Christ's favorite reference for himself. I'm going to tell you what the word means. It's only used twice. Once it's in Psalm 8 when Daniel, no, Daniel, when David talks about mankind. When I consider the heavens and the works of thy hands, what is man that you're concerned with him, or the son of man that you take note of him? But you've made him a little while lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him a king, son of man, Adam, all things under his feet. Wow. Did something happen? Something happened that made us insane. And now we're in the dust of death. Now they lay you six foot under. The son of man fell because of that first Adam. And we can't fix it. We need another Adam. Amen? Another representative of the human race that can succeed where Adam did not and can give us life and put all things under his feet. Question, are all things yet under the feet of God? Y'all watch the news? No, they're not. They will be someday. When? When the Son of Man returns. Now that's mentioned one place in your Old Testament. You know where? It's in Daniel 7. I've shown you Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Let's look at number four, boy. Daniel. Go back to your left to the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, we see in verse 9 the one appearance in the Old Testament of the Father in his glory. I kept looking, Daniel 7 verse 9. And thrones were set up. It's judgment day. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Would y'all like to see that happen? For God to show up and overpower this world and his kingdom come and his will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And his vesture is white snow. He's pure. His hair was like pure wool. He is wise and aged. His throne is ablaze with flames. He is wrathful. Its wheels are burning fire. He will crush all the shaft under his feet. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing. Now he offers a river of life, but then he will offer a river of fire. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, the angelic realm. Myriads and myriads are standing before him mankind upon his judgment. The court sat. The books were opened. But in verse 11, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Trust me, you know who the little horn is that is mouthing off at God? It's Antichrist. And I kept looking until, and Daniel coins a word for an evil ruler. You see it in verse 11? What's the word? Beast. It's what John uses in Revelation. Government without God is bestial. They're dangerous. 
human beings that are given power but have no conscience are terrifying. They're rogue. And so the beast was slain. When Christ returns, who'll be the first one that he kills? It says that Antichrist will be slain by the breath of his mouth and he'll bring him to an end by the appearance of his coming. And its body is destroyed and given to the burning fire. He's the first one to break the surface tension of the lake of fire. And then in verse 12, as for the rest of the beast, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, as to the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. Would y'all agree with that? Has Babylon fallen as a world power? Say yes. Has Persia fallen as a world power? Have the Greeks fallen as a world power? Have the Romans the fall of the Roman Empire? Yes, they have. Things come and go. But in verse 12, an extension of life was granted to them. Even though the Persians fell, God has not destroyed all Persians. Even though the Greeks fell, God has not destroyed all Greeks. Even though A&M will fall someday. Just move on now. Okay. In other words, Italy has fallen, the Romans, but God has not destroyed all Italians. But in verse 12, he will. An extension of life was granted to them, your own probation, until an appointed period of time. World, your own probation. Egypt, Assyria, Greece, Rome, Babylon, Persia, America, Germany, Poland, France. Your dominion is taken away. Can God do that to any government? You're done, Herod. You're done. But I'm still going to let you live. I'm going to give you mercy. But I'm not going to do it forever. There is a point of time appointed. And then I'm going to judge you. And in verse 13, this is when it happens. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a, what's your Bible say? Son of man, here he comes, the last Adam. He's coming, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Do y'all remember a fellow in the New Testament who says this? Are you or not the Son of God? And he said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. And they said, that's blasphemy. You must die. Who claimed to be this guy? Jesus. Which is a dangerous thing when you're being tried and you're about to be put to death. But he came up to the Ancient of Days. Here's the Son and the Father face to face. And he was presented before the Father. Is he worthy to rule? And God looks at him. And I think that he says what he said three times in the Gospels. This is my beloved son. And in him, I am well pleased. And to him was given dominion. Is there going to be a time that the son of man, the son of God, will come from heaven and the Father will give him authority over all things. 
a glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and men might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Who is the Son of Man? It's Jesus. It's the Messiah coming from heaven to put all things under his feet. Go back to John 3. That is what Christ means. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended, and that's me. And he uses the Son of Man. Now, question. When he says the Son of Man, what image comes into Nicodemus's mind? What do you think, Steve? Messiah, glory, power, judgment, fire. He says, no one has ascended but me that came down, the Son of Man. And then he says in verse 14, something new. You ready? Nicodemus has never seen this. It's implied ever so often in his Old Testament, but it's something that Jesus said that wise and righteous men longed to see and did not see. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I think, Steve, at this point, Nicodemus pushed back from the table and said, what did you just say? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, whenever the Israelites fell into idolatry with the Midianites, uh, no, 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 they were grumbling in the wilderness and God sent serpents and bit them and they began to die. And God said, here's what you do. Take a serpent made of bronze something made in the likeness of sin. And I want you to put it on standard. Now, you wouldn't have put a serpent on an upright pole, all right? It would have fell to the bottom. You'd put it on something like this, a serpent on a cross. And whoever looks to it and admits that they're guilty, looks to it, they will be healed, all right? Jesus said, that's about to happen to the Son of Man. He's going to be made sin, and he's going to be lifted up on a tree. Cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. And the reason is that so, in verse 15, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He blew Nicodemus' mind by two things that are heavenly. Number one, is that the Son of Man is going to die. And number two, he's not just going to die for the Jews. Who does it say in verse 15 he's going to die for? Whoever. What's that called? Before the second coming, the first coming occurs where the Son of Man dies as a substitute, not just for Israel, but anybody in humanity, so that, in verse 16, they will not perish. That will be his second coming. Now, what does that sound like to you? He will come, he will die, and he will save whosoever from the Gentiles. And then he will ascend and return, and he will judge the earth. 
and those who do not know him will perish. That's called the age of the church. When Christ came, was rejected, died. Died for sin, now saves Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the earth. And there is an appointed day that he will return and there will be judgment. In other words, what you and I live in, thrive in, move in, and breathe in for the last 20 centuries. Nicodemus didn't know about it. That's why the church age is called in the New Testament, anybody know? Mystery. The secret things belong to God. The things revealed believe to us. I've told you an earthly thing. What are you going to do when I tell you a secret thing? Here it is. I'm the son of man. I'm going to die. And anybody can come. Well, in verse 16, I think this should be in black print. Does your Bible have it in red print? Many feel that it is John speaking because he's speaking third person. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That he's talking third person, not Jesus speaking as he gave me. Now, I think John is now closing the conversation and he's saying, all you Christians, listen up. And he introduces a word that hasn't been used about the world. God so loved the world that he gave a gift, and the gift is his begotten son, not an angel that's a created son, man that is a delegated son, uh, politicians that are installed sons, not Christians that are adopted sons or Israel that are national sons. He gave one of his very stuff, one that is homoousia, the same substance as the father. He gave his begotten son that anybody that merely believes, what's that called? Where you're saved by faith alone. That is called reform thinking. Faith alone in Christ who died. That man will not perish because there is going to be a judgment someday, but he will have right now divine life that will last forever. You know what one guy has said? The, the Holy of Holies was a 10 by 10 cube. In the temple, it's a 20 by 20 cube. In the eternal state, the holy city is 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500. Paul prayed that we could know the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, infinite love. John 3, 16, look at him. God so loved the world. That's the breadth of his love. That he gave his only begotten son. That's the length of his love, what he went to. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That's the depth of his love. You'll never experience what it means, thou hast forsaken me but they shall have eternal life. That's the height of his love. This is the infinite holy of holies of God. And in verse 17, he says, let me explain to you. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, not yet, but that the world could be saved. He God made him who knew no sin to be son, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He has now given an offer. He that believes in him has escaped. It doesn't say he will not be judged. He is not judged. Steve, can you and I sing about heaven right now, even though we're not there? We are not judged. Life is as good as ours. And, in, and he that does not believe has been judged already. You're not going to wait for your judgment merely. You've already judged yourself because you've rejected the only means that God gives. And in verse 19, Christ is the fork of eternity. Some in verse 18 will live, some will be judged. Verse 19, here's why. The light, Christ, has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. Their deeds were evil. John takes a real simple view. The reason that people reject Christ is they don't want to be caught honestly as to who they are. They're sinners. They're sinners. And in verse uh, 20, here's why they, uh, why they love the darkness. Because in 20, everyone who does evil hates the light. Why do men love sin? Because they hate Christ. Simeon said at his birth, this child is appointed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. And by him, the thoughts of many hearts will be unveiled. He is the scandalon. Everyone who does evil is because he hates the light and he won't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But the good guys, those who practice the truth come. The repentant man comes. The man who wants to be under God comes and his deeds are manifested as having been wrought in God. Some men want to glorify themselves. Others want to glorify God. And that's the difference. Let me show you something real quick. Look at Acts chapter 17. Go to your right. And this is what Paul preaches to the Athenians, the smart guys. The Athenians... In 1717, Paul preached to him in the marketplace every day. And in verse 18, some of the philosophers listened to him and said, what would this idle babbler had to say? The word idle babbler is the word spermologos. Doesn't it just sound dirty? Yes, spermologos. A spermologos is a seed picker. It's somebody that has nothing original to say. He's just taking an eclectic of different ideas and passing them off as something new. And in verse 8 or 18, others said, no, no. He's a proclaimer of a strange deity because he's speaking of the resurrection. They said, we've never heard anything like this. This is not no idle babbler. We've never heard anybody talk about an incarnation, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection, return in judgment. We've never heard this before. In verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. What is this new teaching? You're bringing some strange things. 21, they would stay there every day just to hear something new because the old stuff didn't work. Give us something new. Jesus said to Nicodemus, I bring to you earthly things you don't believe. What are you going to do if I tell you something new, brand new? So Paul stood in their midst. Men of Athens, I observe you're very religious which is a word meaning superstitious. It's like saying, you know, for a fat boy, you don't sweat much, okay? 
I mean, it's not a real compliment. It's just, you're really superstitious. While I was passing and examining the objects of worship, I found an altar to an unknown God. You wanted to make sure that you didn't miss a God because you know your ideas are not infinite. You know they're not omniscient. You know they're not from God. And so you're scared about offending some God you don't know. In verse 24, I'm going to tell you who he is. He's the creator. He made the world. He is omnipresent. He doesn't dwell in a temple. He's omnipotent in 25. Human hands can't serve him because he's immutable. He doesn't need anything. He gives life and breath to all men. He gives life and breath. God so loved the world, he gave you rains in their seasons and satisfied your hearts with gladness. God gave to you all of your life. What did Jesus say? God causes his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God loved you. And in 27 or 26, he's sovereign. He made from one. Where does he get that? Genesis. It's the God of Israel. He made from one as creator every nation. He's over the Tower of Babel. And he's appointed their times and their boundaries. Where they live and how long they will exist. He holds creation in his hand. And in verse 27, you can find him. You're to seek him. You're, if you grope for him, you might find him. He's not far from any of us because in 28 in him, we live and move and exist. Even one of your own poets has said, we are all his offspring. There was a pagan poet that says of Zeus, we are all the offspring of Zeus. Paul borrows from that poet and says, it's not true about Zeus. Zeus is true about Christ. And in 28, we are his children. So why would you think 29, as the children of God, that the divine nature is gold, silver, stone, or an image formed by the thought of man? Verse 30, in your idolatry, God has made a decision. Verse 30, he's overlooked time of ignorance. Are y'all glad to see that? I didn't destroy those cultures. It's what you saw in Daniel 7. God has overlooked times of ignorance. He has let you continue, though your appointed time is coming. God has overlooked Germany and France and Russia and Putin and Joe. And he has overlooked Roe versus Wade. He has overlooked all of your perversion. He's overlooked your monkeypox. Okay. He's overlooked all of your weirdness and he has been good. Are we glad? Yes. But he's now declaring to men, what's it say? Everywhere. God so loved the world that you better repent. You better repent because the time of mercy ain't forever. Amen. There's a slow train coming. He's late, all right? Verse 30. One time I did that in the evening service. I said, it's a slow train coming, and it showed up right there. 300 people came forward, volunteered for the mission field. God has, in verse 31, what's it say? Fixed a day. It's written, he's coming. 
God said to Noah, his years shall be 120, and that's it. He's coming, and he will judge the world in righteousness. And who's he going to judge it through? A man. See also Daniel 7. The son of man. And he has furnished proof to all men that he's raised him from the dead. It's called presuppositionalism. You know he created it. You know you're in his image. You know you have a sense of guilt. You know you have an obligation to your fellow man. And you know in yourself you can't approach God. You know that he has spoken in his word. You look at it and you know there cannot be any other answer. You're guilty. You're guilty. So if you're still alive today as a non-Christian, you're a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Come. Today, you, do you have a guarantee of tomorrow? No, you don't. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in your word. For the delight of looking at Acts and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and uh, John and Deuteronomy and all that you have to say. Indeed, God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son to die that anybody that simply believes in him and bows before him and accepts him. They should not burn in hell, but they would have life right now that will usher forth in eternity. What a deal. And so we thank you for the beauty of this hour. In Jesus' name, amen.